I think it is probably true that distrust of government is higher today than it was certainly back during the Salk vaccine. By the way, I'm either proud or embarrassed to say that I was standing in line for a sugar cube back in uh, around 1960, and I don't recall anybody ever saying, I mean, we were all begging for it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to At WCSU, the podcast that brings you right here to campus at Western Connecticut State University. I'm Paul Steinmetz here in the basement of Whitehall with Pete Puccio. Hello. Hello, Pete. (laughs) And today we have a really good podcast interview with Rick Lawrence, who is a data scientist. He happens to be volunteering for his time for the town of Ridgefield, where he lives, to Uh, keep track of COVID of all things. He's been doing this for a couple of years or ever since uh, COVID raised its head. And he's helping the town decide when do we do a mask mandate? When do we shut things down? And it's a lot more interesting than I just made it sound. He has a great background and he's going to talk to us all about what he does, how he came to this position, and he's doing a lecture here on campus on November 3rd at 5.30 in Science Building 125. So this is a little preview of that. We also introduce you to uh, the third of our student co-hosts. This is Youssef Saqib. He's a sophomore, I think he said. I think so, yeah. And... uh, he is an enthusiastic podcaster who is going to bring a really interesting um, perspective to what we do here. He also said he'd like to, uh, to cover some of the sports here at WestCon and bring a little more of that information to uh, the podcast. So we're just going to be chock full of information. And I think that means we can start with our interview with Rick Lawrence. Is that right, Pete? Yeah. All right. Here's Dr. Rick Lawrence. So, Rick Lawrence, thanks for being here with us. We're looking forward to hearing you on campus on November 3rd, but uh, we thought we'd ask you a few questions about what that's going to be like and uh, get you to say some things about uh, COVID uh, to build up interest. I wanted to get into your background a little bit at the start because I think it's unusual. First of all, you went to – you're a COVID uh, expert now, but you started as a – your undergraduate career at Stanford University in chemical engineering. So you were kind of showing off a little bit, Stanford and chemical engineering. Yes, that's true. I was a uh, chemical engineer as an undergrad. Uh, interesting enough, I had an interest in physics, but decided I probably didn't, wasn't sure if I wanted to get a PhD, so I decided I'd uh, get a degree in chemical engineering. Uh, and then uh, I atoned for my sins for not being a physicist by going on and getting a PhD in nuclear engineering. And my uh, PhD thesis was kind of a uh, more in computational physics, involved a lot of programming. And hmm. uh, that's kind of uh, where uh, the basis of my interest in data science arose was when I was programming computers to do very different things uh, way back then. So that makes sense. I was wondering how you make that leap from nuclear uh engineering to this, but if you're working in the computers the whole time, you're also, you did, you've done work in computer science and you're um, well-versed in machine learning now. Is that more self-educated than uh, academic educated? Yeah, to a certain extent. So interesting enough, what brought me to Connecticut and specifically to Ridgefield was uh, uh, Slumberger Dahl Research. Mm -hmm. Slumberger is a uh, oil field exploration uh, corporation. Uh, it had a very leading-edge research uh, headquarters uh, in uh, Richfield. Uh, they f- eventually left Richfield in 2005, but I came here in 1984 in their nuclear science department. They did a lot of you know, nuclear measurements. Uh, but what was interesting there was is a really cool place, and about seven of us shared uh, the largest, the world's largest supercomputer at the time. Really? So I became very, you know, sort of skilled and uh, fell in love with just programming big computers. And hence, I morphed over to IBM Research because IBM Research was looking for people who understood how to program computers. I knew uh, precisely zero about formal <laughs> computer science, to get back to your question, Paul, and uh, ended up um, 
doing uh, array of sort of scientific algorithms for big computers at IBM. And then it became clear, we're all the way up to the 90s, that uh, uh, there was a huge volume of growing data out there. That was sort of the beginning of the internet, but also other ways of uh, collecting and maintaining large volumes of data. And hence it became an interest, it was called data mining at the time, and sort of using computers to extract insight uh, from data. Mm -hmm. So that was the beginning of data science, well, certainly my beginning is data science. And then at IBM, you know, I continued to sort of morph into different management positions and I ended up uh, in, the, in the last few years I was there, well, actually over the last decade, sort of managing what was called machine learning, mm -hmm. which is a, a more rigorous uh, instantiation, if you like, of data science that uses, uh, I would argue, more sophisticated algorithms um, uh, than, you know, than many other disciplines to sort of understand very complex concepts and data. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what, uh, that's sort of my quick transition from, you know, nuclear engineering through computational science into data mining and machine learning. Mm -hmm. And you had stayed in Ridgefield after you came here with Schlumberger and you, with all that data uh, experience in understanding data and analyzing it, you uh, became part of the first selectman's team on COVID when the pandem pandemic came along. Yes, that's correct. So um, just real quick what had happened. I, I left IBM in 2016 and spent three of the best years of my life, the most fun. Uh, we were actually running, I was running a quant finance startup in the city that was using machine learning to mm -hmm. extract insights uh, around transactions in the private equity space and trying to do inference about performance of publicly traded equities. Mm -hmm. uh, we were funded by uh, some VCs in California in 2019. Uh, we weren't seeing sufficient signal that is predictive power in the markets. Uh, so they uh, decided to withdraw their funding. So mm -hmm. I uh, had time on my hands. And then when the pandemic hit in 2020, um, I just started downloading data. I, this was in April 2020 uh, for two reasons. One is that's sort of baked into my DNA. Uh, but secondly, I was hearing a lot of things uh, that I didn't really believe. Mm -hmm. uh, and the thing that set me off uh, was the former administration statement uh, that the problem with more testing was that we find more cases. <laughs> and I thought that didn't sound like really good science to me. Mm -hmm. uh, so I actually started downloading this data and started looking closely at it. In fact, one of the uh, plots that I will show uh, at the talk on November 3rd uh, is still sort of that original view that I developed around testing and, uh, and new case rates. So I had uh, communicated, getting back to your question, Paul, about, well, the Bridgefield Task Force. So I had... Um, uh, sent some of this to Rudy Marconi, first selectman of Ridgefield. And uh, Rudy called me up and said, well, listen, I'm forming a task force around COVID. Uh, we'd love to have you join. Of course, I was delighted to do so. So I started doing that in October. And believe it or not, that October of 2020, mm. uh, it's now been a year. And I'm proud to say that without exception, every single weekday, uh, for this past year, I've just generated uh, a PowerPoint that uh, uh, is uploaded to the RidgefieldCT.org website, specifically a page that's uh, with information about the pandemic. And, uh, and I will say that Rudy has been a very, uh, uh, you know, uh, quick learner and very quick to uh, assimilate and uh, understand the data and most importantly, and this mm -hmm. is above my pay grade, uh, <laughs> is to drive policy mm -hmm. uh, associated uh, with these findings. So it's uh, been, I've been, you know, delighted to uh, to help out in Ridgefield, but it's also given me a chance. I sort of, you know, part of, I'll call it the underground data science, uh, COVID data science uh, consortium that uh, uh, various people doing interesting things. And on occasion, I send analysis to the governor's office when I see things that I think are pretty interesting around Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And uh, I continue to sort of operate in that space uh, and uh, just writing tons of code and ingesting tons of data and, uh uh, producing uh, hopefully useful insight for various people to consume. Yeah, the time was just right for that for a, a COVID hacker. 
Yeah, unfortunately, uh, <laughs> it, it was. Uh, I wish it weren't. And I mm. keep I keep thinking that, gee, maybe my little gig here is going to be up. I hope that it's going to be up. <laughs> I thought in the summertime it was going to yeah. be up. And uh, uh, then uh, one thing I've learned about COVID and COVID data science is never take anything for granted. Uh, that uh, What's the old Mark Twain saying? Uh, uh, if uh, if uh, you, you don't like the uh, the weather in San Francisco, wait another day. Well, if if you like the way COVID is going, wait another day because <laughs> there's a chance it will change. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Did you? Uh, so you were among those of us like me who was very happy in I don't know middle of July when it seemed like we could take our masks off and live life normally again. Is that what the data actually seemed to indicate at that time? At that time, we actually, up to that time, the task force had been meeting at least weekly mm-hmm. uh, in Ridgefield. And we actually stopped meeting uh, in July, exactly the time you mentioned, Paul, because we thought, not that that was over, but that uh, case rates were getting so low that maybe we wouldn't have to worry as much. And uh, I still remember uh, Rudy uh, issued a press release can't remember the exact timing when uh, the sort of the first sentence of the release was that we are now reconvening the COVID task force mm. because we're you know seeing sort of you know some subtle changes in the data. Mm-hmm. The so let's talk about what you're seeing uh, overall now. Do you think? I mean, the thing, information you're getting is not just for Ridgefield, correct? It's really you can extrapolate it to at least Connecticut and New England or rest of the country? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, again, uh, I was uh, looking forward to the November 3rd talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not talking about Ridgefield at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I specifically focus on Connecticut and the U.S. I think there's a couple slides that just sort of show the trends in Fairfield County. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm particularly interested not only in Connecticut, but in other states, because mm-hmm. as people have become to appreciate around COVID, um, uh, with very few exceptions, there's no isolation of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, as the old saying, we're all in this together, and that indeed is true. So while it is the case that Connecticut is doing quite well, uh, we are typically now in the lowest, uh, in the three lowest states in terms of new case rate. And by the way, we are number one in terms of completed vaccination percents mm-hmm. among the eligible population. So if you just draw a boundary, a border around Connecticut, uh, things are looking encouraging. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there are other states uh, that aren't doing as well, uh, although they have recently started to, uh, uh, case rates have started to drop uh, throughout these other states. So yes, that's a long answer to the fact that um, uh, while for my my day-to-day activities in Ridgefield focus very much on Ridgefield and Fairfield County, Mm -hmm. uh, my broader agenda is understanding uh, characteristics of COVID and uh, particularly vaccination impact uh, uh, throughout uh, all states in the country. So about that vaccination impact, are you seeing a correlation there? Very strong correlation. I'll I'll give you a very quick lecture to say that correlation is not always the best indication. Mm. Um, People tend to look more at causality. Can you say that vaccinations cause reduced case rates? Mm. So indeed, there has been correlation now for a couple of months that the states that have the highest vaccination rates are more inclined to have lower uh, case rates. So indeed, that is correlation. Um, I do build uh, more sophisticated models that uh, arguably uh, tease out uh, more uh, complicated relationships between various variables and sort of the observables like new case rate. Mm -hmm. And indeed, uh, in my view, um, vaccination rate is a strongly significant statistical predictor. I'll use the word predictor Mm -hmm. um, of uh, reduced case rates. Okay, in my mind, there is absolutely no doubt whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Good. And so the places uh, in the states that are not, um, that have higher case rates, they, just what I've seen in the news, inevitably have lower vaccination rates too. And people are not getting it there yet that uh, if they just vaccinate, they'd be safer. This is exactly right. So here are the troubling trends that I see um, outside of Connecticut. Um, 
States like West Virginia, most notably, have currently less than 50% mm. of the eligible population vaccinated. Not the total population, the eligible population. That's the people, t obviously, age 12 and above, although it looks like there will be EUA for uh, emergency use authorization for ages 5 through 11, but right now it's 12 and above. Mm -hmm. So that means over 50% of the population in West Virginia could walk in to their local CVS tomorrow and get vaccinated, uh, but they've chosen not to. Okay. Second observation, again, I don't mean to pick on West Virginia. There are mm -hmm. several other states, just thinking off the top of my head, uh, Alabama, Arkansas, uh, West Virginia, uh, Mississippi have traditionally are still at around the 50% completed vaccination rate. Here's what's really concerning me. Um, I look very closely at a metric that I don't see other people reporting, and that is of those fraction of people who are eligible to get vaccinated but are unvaccinated each day, hmm. how many of them on average raise their hand and say, this is the day I'm going to go in and get vaccinated? Okay. So I think about it this way. Let's just say we could fill an auditorium hmm. with a thousand individuals chosen randomly throughout the United States to start with who are age 12 and above, therefore eligible uh, but so far unvaccinated. On average, in the U.S., if I went into that auditorium, asked these people, okay, who's going to get vaccinated today? Three of them <laughs> would raise their hand. Three out of a thousand. Hmm. Okay. In Connecticut, which is already number one in vaccinations, guess what? That number is eight <laughs> out of a thousand. But here's the concern coming back to the lower vaccinated states. Again, not to pick on West Virginia, Mississippi, they Alabama. Don't listen to our web those podcast. those states, two people on a good day, mm -hmm. on a good day in West Virginia, two out of that thousand people in this Gadonkin experiment, about a thousand people in Autorum would say that they want to get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. So here's the scary part. They are way behind. And we can talk about herd immunity in, mm. in more detail here in a moment, but they are not ever gonna sniff herd immunity based on vaccination rates. They're going to do it the old-fashioned way, and that is they're just all going to get infected, and uh, nobody will hide from Delta or uh, any variant that uh, right. uh, supersedes Delta with uh, similar, characteristics, uh, similar characteristics. Um, and they're slowed down. Mm -hmm. They're basically done getting vaccinated uh, at 50%. Mm -hmm. Now, here's another concern. People don't often talk about testing rates anymore. We used to talk about that a lot. As I said in the beginning here, mm -hmm. that's kind of what got me interested. Mm -hmm. There's a very scary correlation, to use that word again, that the states that have the lowest vaccination rates tend, as I said, to have higher case rates because that correlation between vaccination and case rates. Guess what? They also have lower testing rates. Mm. Their testing rates in some of these states is one, roughly one-sixth per capita of what it is in Connecticut. So when it appears that their case rates are going down, and indeed their case rates are going down, I get a little bit concerned that those case rates are not being properly uh, sampled, mm -hmm. to use a statistical term, because they have, they have dropped off in testing. Mm -hmm. So this just gives you an idea of the way I sort of think about the interplay between uh, the observable, the thing we care most about, case rates mm -hmm. versus vaccination rates versus other sort of attributes, most normally, how quickly are people coming forward to get vaccinated, uh, given that they have a low rate? And secondly, uh, how, how much testing is being done so we can make sure that indeed we have, you know, a good read on what the, the current infection rates are. It kind of comes down to if you believe in science, you'll say, oh, I'm convinced I'll get uh, at least tested, but probably vaccinated. And if you are willing to uh, dismiss it completely with, just because of your own personal feelings, uh, we're going to see this thing continue to go on in at least unvaccinated regions for a long time. For a long time, and nobody knows how long a long time is. Mm. Um, I My point of view is I used to diligently report to Rudy and to the Ridgefield Task Force when I thought 
Connecticut would hit, quote unquote, herd immunity. And by the way, just to be clear, people hear that expression. So herd immunity refers to the fact that the population, a sufficient number of people in a, in a population have achieved, achieved immunity either through vaccination or, quote unquote, natural immunity, which means that they have been previously infected and mm -hmm. therefore have acquired some natural immunity. We talk about numbers like uh, 80% mm -hmm. or so. Mm -hmm. um, my concern, as I said, many of these states, and by the way, including the U.S., the U.S. is at approximately two-thirds completed vaccination rate among eligible uh, people. 80% mm. is a long ways away. So what's going to happen? Well, my view is when people ask me, how is this thing going to end? My view is it's going to end, unfortunately, the old-fashioned way. The old-fashioned way is... You know, it's what happened in 2000, or sorry, 1918 mm -hmm. in Spanish flu. People are just going to acquire natural immunity the hard way. That is, they are going to get COVID. And we know what happens when you get COVID and particularly when you get the Delta variant. Mm. Uh, outcomes are unpredictable and they can be severe, including hospitalization, including death. Mm -hmm. So if we don't get above these vaccination rates, and again, to reiterate, I don't see that happening in a lot of these states, um, the only way we will get out of this is for them to ultimately uh, get infected. Because Delta, um, talk a little bit more about just some basic epidemiology, um, uh, Delta is a very, very contagious variant. It has a basic replication reproduction factor of eight, which means that if one person gets infected, mm. they are on average going to infect eight other people. That's pretty scary. It's also it's very scary when you consider for seasonal flu, it's 1.28, and mm. for the so-called ancestral variant, which was the initial uh, variant uh, for COVID, it was three. Mm. So we are now dealing with a population that still does not have sufficient immunity, certainly not due to vaccination, and we are dealing with a variant that will seek them out because that's what it does. Right. And by the way, we hope that when it seeks them out and when they get infected, we don't get a new variant that will make us wish we still had Delta. <laughs> now, I have that uh, crosses yeah. in the boundaries that I'm not uh, an expert in, uh, but that is a concern. Mm -hmm. So while it is true that in the U.S. case rates have come down roughly a factor of two uh, per capita in the last um, uh, six to seven weeks. Uh, we're not out of this yet because we all know what happened last fall. It, last mm -hmm. fall is not, in my view, will not be replicated this fall uh, because we have so many people vaccinated. Uh, but we will have residual and my sense is, and growing sense is, that we will live with COVID-19 uh, for a extended period of time. And I won't venture what that extended period of time is, but it uh, uh, it's not going to be just uh, for another few months or maybe even just for another year. Right. And isn't it true that people who get infected, uh, they haven't been vaccinated, but they get infected, their um, immune system, their immunity doesn't last forever either. Isn't that true? So this is true. Um, I typically like to only talk about data yes. that I've analyzed but there is data that from the CDC that is from perhaps a couple of months ago that suggested that natural immunity had an efficacy of around 60%. Hmm. Remember the mRNA vaccines, obviously mm -hmm. Moderna and Pfizer, after two doses have an efficacy of about 95%. What is interesting about the 60% number is that is in the clinical studies roughly the level of efficacy they found after one dose. Of Pfizer or Moderna. Hmm. So to the extent that that guidance is still applicable, what it means is that natural immunity is, and I'll say crudely like getting one dose of Pfizer and Moderna. And as, as Paul just mentioned, uh, we know that particularly Pfizer, we start losing immunity. It mm -hmm. starts waning. Uh, and that means that it will become a, it will be waning off a lower level if you had natural immunity, and by the way, there's also a slightly annoying detail that uh, new variants will introduce <laughs> new challenges and therefore uh, potential other uh, uh, aspects to, to immunity. Sure. So in my view, uh, 
natural immunity is not a very good way to get yourself out of a pandemic. God knows we found that out in 1918. It's mm -hmm. a shame that we have to find it out now because mm -hmm. of low vaccination rates. Um, and um, we can only hope that we can get enough people vaccinated so that the people who do get it, so that we, first of all, minimize breakthrough cases, and we should talk about that in a, in a few mm -hmm. minutes, minimize breakthrough cases, but at the same time, try to minimize the suffering that unfortunately is going to be incurred by the people who've chosen not to get vaccinated because a significant fraction of them will get infected. Mm -hmm. That's a fact. Mm -hmm. The breakthrough cases are interesting, partly because today's the day we're recording this on the day that uh, Colin Powell died. He had a, was fully vaccinated, his family said. He had a breakthrough case. He had a weakened immunity system because of another disease. But, um, you know, it was COVID killed him even though he was vaccinated? So there's a multifaceted discussion around breakthrough. The first observation is no vaccine is 100% effective. Mm -hmm. Clinical trials, as we may recall, uh, showed Moderna and Pfizer after two doses was ordered 95%. Which was incredible, right? Which I is mean, incredible. It's and by the way, early on, those results were largely replicated in the field, so to speak, in mm. real life. Mm -hmm. Now, what we know, some of work from Israel and so forth, is that has waned. Mm. But nevertheless, uh, it was uh, replicated. Um, trying to think back to the, the point I was on. Um, breakthrough cases. Oh, sorry. So, breakthrough, so back to breakthrough cases. So what do we know? If you have questions about the efficacy of vaccination, one of the best ways to start is to just look at the breakthrough data, hmm. okay? Now, in the talk that I'm giving, and I have a result from last Thursday, I really ought to be looking at that result before I misquote it, but let me take a shot at it here mm -hmm. without uh, looking at it. Uh, the Connecticut Department of Public Health has reports breakthrough data, well, and more detailed data every Thursday. The latest breakthrough data shows that if you are vaccinated, you have a five times lower probability, lower chance of contracting COVID than if you're unvaccinated, mm -hmm. 5X. If you are vaccinated, you have at least a five times lower chance probability of dying mm. from COVID. And here's a number that's very high uh, this past week. If you are vaccinated, your, your probability of being hospitalized relative to an unvaccinated person is approximately a factor of 72. Okay, I think this is just because the num frankly, because the numbers of vaccinated people are, who are getting hospitalized is becoming so small, the denominator mm -hmm. in this argument is becoming uh, noisy, as we would say in, in a data science perspective. Mm -hmm. Any way you look at that data, if you are unvaccinated, I don't understand how you look at this data and draw any other conclusion than if you are eligible for vaccination that you don't walk in and get it tomorrow because you can cross over. You can cross from that world of unvaccinated people into the world that I just described, mm -hmm. which is the data and the data science around the vaccinated people. So that is a very, very strong argument. Uh, and It is. Let's... Um Get back to that. And, but I just wanted to ask about masks, too. Do you have data on masks yeah. and the efficacy of that? So measuring the impact of masks is challenging uh, for at least the following reason. Um, when you do an FDA drug test, it's, it's a fairly well-understood process. Mm -hmm. You identify... For example, in the case of COVID, 30,000 individuals, you would divide them into two groups, sort of balancing them, and then uh, you give one of them the treatment, the vaccine, the other, uh, the other half, the other group is, uh, gets the uh, placebo, and the experiment is what's called double-blinded. That is, nobody knows what has been given, and there's a, uh, think of it, a cryptographic key, so to speak, that uh, uh, at the end uncovers who actually got the vaccine and therefore what the mm -hmm. results were. And I mm -hmm. remember reading that Pfizer Moderna, that their scientists were elated when finally they got to uncover the results and see that. It doesn't work like that with masks. Mm -hmm. You don't get to split up the population and go out and do that. You have to observe it more uh, based on the data. 
Now, one of the things I'm not going to go into the talk is uh, there are, at last count, somewhere between a 50 and 100 scientific publications mm. around the impact of masks on COVID-19. And these vary from sort of, you know, I'll call them quasi-clinical studies to what are referred to as observational studies. That's sort of what happens in the wild mm-hmm. versus uh, people who do, uh, uh, you know, aerosol fluid dynamics who <laughs> worked in a profession that nobody ever paid attention to until we got uh, <laughs> uh, uh, a pandemic that was caused by a virus that sped by uh, uh, minuscule droplets uh, that are potentially pa- uh, stopped by a K95 mouse. So mm-hmm. these people have done remarkably nice work and incredibly relevant work that, again, demonstrates very strongly the impact of mask wearing. So I'm not going to talk about that, but yes, there is data. And the data that I will talk about is analysis that I've done. I tend to prefer to talk about things that I've done just Mm -hmm. because I I understand it. Um, And that is looking at very closely at case rates all the way back in May and June of 2020. That was over a year ago. Why do we go back then? Because that's when the first mask mandates were kicking in. Mm -hmm. I believe in Connecticut, it was uh, April 23rd that masks became mandated. And then what I do in this, and I'll talk about this in the talk on November 3rd, is I look at, well, what happened to the case rates of those states that put mask mandates in place? And the case rates were, I'll use the word significantly, substantially lower Mm. than those uh, that waited. Now, is that a good clinical experiment? No, because there could be other confounding uh, factors Uh, most notably social distancing Mm. and perhaps uh, uh, lockdowns that also occurred that that, that could have led to that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's complicated. I'll just mention one other thing of sort of academic interest. Uh, You may wonder, well, what what could be the relationship between COVID and economics? Uh, Last week, the 2021 Nobel Prize in economics was given, um, and it was given uh, to three uh, economists, one of whom was at Stanford. And Uh, The professor at Stanford's work was on what is called natural experiments and deducing insight from natural experiments. Most notably, um, when you have a population, for example, uh, in an academic setting, uh, a fraction of that population has had an additional uh, year of secondary schooling. Mm -hmm. So what is the impact downstream on their economic status? Well, that's not a clean, that's not a real clean experiment because they've gone off and done things. And, and again, like I was saying before, they're confounding factors. Yeah. This is sort of what we try to do in COVID. We try to tease out the fact that we don't have time to do lots of really careful experiments, most notably around mask wearing. We, mm-hmm. we certainly did in terms of FDA. And there are other uh, measurements as well. Uh, <laughs> and sorry, I will add one, one other plug for Stanford uh, economics. Uh, uh, I've only had pass. I took a freshman econ course there. Um, they published an amazing paper. I think the timing was suspect. It happened to be on uh, November 1st, uh, 2020. You may have recalled that we had a presidential election about mm-hmm. a week later. <laughs> this paper used methodology such as was used by the uh, Nobel laureate, um, who was actually was not an author, but he was referenced in it. And what did they do? They teased out the impact of a number of, now I'm going to go political, Trump rallies that were held in the summer of 2020. Why are the Trump rallies of interest in this context? Because they were largely without social distancing. They were largely without masks Mm -hmm. uh, in a period when we still, of course, had significant COVID. And doing some very elegant analysis, they were able to show statistically, and I buy their arguments, I've communicated with them, statistically that indeed those rallies, I'll use the word caused, were, was a causal effect on increased case races and the uh, um, case rates. And they then made the argument that's a little bit more nebulous is that that would have led to a, a certain number of deaths mm-hmm. based on mortality rates uh, that were known at the time. Mm-hmm. So what I'm trying to just outline here is to say that we hear a lot of a lot of information, unfortunately, uh, you know, some uh, fra- significant fraction of it is uh, misinformation about COVID. But off on the side, there are some very serious people, very serious academic people doing very serious science, data science mm-hmm. around COVID uh, in terms of trying to tease out what, what the impact is. 
Okay, and uh, that's not my work. I'm not sort of in that in that realm. But I will say that I did take the Stanford work and apply it because I wanted to try to deduce when we saw anomalous, unexpected levels of COVID infection in hmm. various in Connecticut towns. So I actually was putting out a signal. I think I actually at one point was uh, had this in my reports in the town, although I don't think anybody understood them, uh, as to when I would think that Richfield's COVID rates, or for that matter, any other town. Uh, were higher than would be expected. Mm -hmm. So think of that as, crudely speaking, the analogy back to the Trump rally where a whole bunch of people got together. This is a behavioral observation. And now we're going to do some tease out from that downstream data what actually happened there. Mm -hmm. So that's my very minor sort of connection back into <laughs> uh, sort of the world of economics and mm -hmm. uh, most recently Nobel Prize in economics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. And when I listen to you and all the, you know, you've got reams of data, things you haven't even talked about yet, um, that sound very convincing to me, you know, and I was already on, I was got vaccinated as soon as I could. I was already of that uh, mindset, but <clears throat> I still talk to people who say, oh, there's breakthrough cases. The vaccines don't really work. If uh, they worked, you wouldn't get vac uh, vaccine breakthrough cases. Colin Powell would still be alive, etc. That's why I'm not getting it. And I refrain from saying, well, that's stupid. But that is really what uh, they are. I will just say that it's completely contrary to any rational interpretation of available data. I go back to the breakthrough data. If somebody says that to me, okay, I'm going to give you a choice. You can live in this world where you have five times greater likelihood of getting COVID. By the way, you got at least five times a better chance of dying. You've got a 70 times better chance of being hospitalized. <laughs> or with one shot tomorrow, or more precisely two shots over the next 21 to 28 days, you can go over on the other side. Right. Which one do you want? So you have thought a little bit about that, too. Why are there so many people not wanting to live in the sane world? Uh, that truly crosses in an area that uh, that uh, I don't know what even area that is. Um, one thing I will try to do in this talk that I've refrained from in previous talks that I've given about COVID is I've tried to very much bound my discussion and my insights in the data science world. Mm -hmm. um, but I've increasingly become aware that it's, it's almost unacceptable, to use a strong word for me, to tiptoe to the boundary and then say, tell you what, that's it. I'm done. I've told you the data. Now go make your own decision. Because unfortunately, people have seen this data mm -hmm. and they're not, in my view, making the right decision. Mm -hmm. So what I'm going to try to do in this talk um, of November 3rd is for the first time cross into, I call it political science. I just like the uh, uh, sort of the uh, uh, symmetry between data science and political science. Mm -hmm. And by the way, my last course in political science was uh, precisely 51 years ago. <laughs> so in no way, but uh, it, by was the way it, was it was taken by a, from a very liberal political scientist <laughs> whose views, if you come in here November 3rd, you will probably uh, uh, possibly glean uh, some view. Mm -hmm. um, so I summarize. So this is my view of the intersection of data science and political science. Um, my statement as a data scientist, which I've tried to summarize here, is that there is no statistical doubt that both vaccinations and mask wearing reduce the risk of contracting COVID. That is data science. Mm -hmm. And I will defend that and I have defended it uh, forever. Now, point two uh, into political science. I believe, maybe based on my political science uh, from 51 years ago, that governments have an obligation to protect their constituents from known risks. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm stretching this argument like a mathematical proof. And I told you, uh, you can accept my data science, hopefully, uh, that indeed there is risk uh, if with, without uh, vaccination, without masks. So therefore, my conclusion is uh, that governments have an obligation to their constituents to put in place mandates because those mandates are consistent what I view to be the function of government. By the way, I'm agnostic as to whether we're talking about a town or a state or the United States. Mm -hmm. I believe that governments have that right, not, excuse me, have, uh, well, we'll call it uh, uh, that authority uh, to enforce mandates because we have such overwhelming evidence that to do so, to, to not do so, would be to force their constituents to accept risk 
that is known and quantified. Mm -hmm. And I'll go even further to state that sort of my corollary on this is that it would be, strong words, almost immoral and unethical for a government in full view of the scientific data and analysis that we have now to do anything other than to mandate mm -hmm. mass and, as, as appropriate uh, and vaccinations. Uh, and I will say, as somebody who told you uh, the auditorium experiment, every day three people out of a thousand in the country raise their hand, um, we're done, we're, we're done uh, with the carrot mm -hmm. in this country. Okay, I hate to say it, we are done with the carrot because vaccination rates are just leveling off in the places that they can least afford to level off. And again, to be very blunt, I think we need, uh, I will use the word stick, since carrots and sticks go together, mm -hmm. and say that indeed we have reached a point, and I fully support the Biden administration's view, that we need mandates because look at the data and come to my talk and I will hopefully convince you that the data is not leading us to the point where we will, we will reach the herd immunity that I talked about unless we change the trajectory that we're on. And I believe that all employers, uh, to the extent that they legally can, uh, will have to enforce mandates. And also somebody who's operating in a quant finance world, I, if I were running a, uh, a private equity fund uh, or a, uh, uh, any other fund, I would be very reluctant to invest in publicly traded companies or a company that did not invest and, and mandate uh, vaccinations for the employees because I don't want to, I don't want to accept the risk. Mm -hmm. I don't want to accept the risk uh, that I would as a shareholder. I'm willing to accept other risks, but mm -hmm. I'm not going to accept the risk of them not getting people vaccinated. And I applaud uh, Delta Airlines um, announcement um, uh, a few weeks ago that said, um, it started with an observation. Uh, Delta is self, uh, like many large corporations, um, is self-insured. And the average co cost of a COVID case is about $50,000. <laughs> mm -hmm. And they pay, that's yeah. the average cost. So they said, okay, we got that, uh, guess what? we're gonna pass that risk on to you. Mm -hmm. If you're not gonna get vaccinated, we're gonna charge you, I believe, $200 extra a month as an additional uh, cost of health insurance that, by the way, we're underwriting, underwriting mm -hmm. uh, because we can't afford that cost. And if I could say just one, uh, sort of continuing along that risk, um, here's the other argument that I make. Uh, let's, look, let's look at automobile safety uh, as an example. So, for the longest time, we as a society, as constituents, as individuals, as drivers, uh, have agreed that seatbelt wearing, should, we have no problem with mm -hmm. governments enforcing seatbelts. Why? Because there's massive amount of data that shows that when you wear a seatbelt, you reduce your personal risk of injury in an automobile accident. Okay, but that's not, some people use that as an argument for vaccination. That's not a strong enough argument because, and the difference is, if I don't get vaccinated, I can infect you. Mm -hmm. As we talked about with breakthrough cases, I could even have a small chance, a non-zero chance of infecting you even if you're vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's not, that's not the analogy with seatbelts because seatbelts largely protect you. But here's the analogy. Uh, we also agree as a society that if you have a bug, al bug alcohol content of greater than 0.1%, you are uh, driving impaired. And we have massive volumes of data that demonstrate that people who drive when they're impaired uh, kill innocent people. That's a fact. Mm -hmm. That's scientific data. Uh, that's a fact. So, but we accept the fact uh, that you can, we can mandate, that governments have the right to mandate that people not drive drunk. Mm -hmm. So now let's go to COVID. I'm sort of, and now I'm talking about the, the, the personal freedom argument. Mm -hmm. I will grant you very reluctantly that you have the freedom uh, to decide not to get vaccinated. Okay, let's just start with that point. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I say very reluctantly. <laughs> okay, but guess what? I'm not going to agree that you have the right to pass that risk onto me because that's what you're doing. Mm -hmm. You're not bounding the risk around you. You're passing that risk on to me and any other individual that you have come in contact. So I won't accept that. But here's the broader statement. 
I'm also not going to accept you passing that risk on more broadly to society. And how are you doing that? You're doing that because you are in some way uh, impacting the economy because when people get infected, uh, it presumably has an impact on productivity uh, in the mm-hmm. economy and therefore on GDP and the, therefore on the economy as, as we uh, you know, sort of observe it daily. Um, but you also have an impact on the healthcare system. And guess what? You also have an impact. You're, you're causing a lot of suffering. So again, okay, I'll grant you maybe you have the freedom to make a personal decision, but you don't have that freedom to pass that risk on to me, and you certainly don't have that freedom to pass that risk on to society. Mm -hmm. So you need to act just as I assume you act uh, by not uh, uh, driving while intoxicated. Mm -hmm. So I don't see very much difference in those two arguments. I don't think there is at all. You have to have insurance to drive your vehicle too. This is true. You have to have insurance because bad things happen in vehicles. And government has – and why does government mandate seatbelts and no drunk drivers? Because you want to minimize that risk. Mm -hmm. And that's government, in my view, government doing exactly – well, performing one of the key roles that I believe uh, government should uh, Mm -hmm. uh, perform uh, Mm -hmm. in our society. So – you know, you and I haven't spoken before, but I've read things about uh, uh, the data, and uh, it didn't take too long to convince me that, yes, this is a good thing. I need to get vaccinated. It has good effects. Um, but we know that doesn't – that not everybody. A lot of people don't uh, uh, read, the, read it that way. They're being influenced uh, not just by politics, that's some of it, but also by – they're things they read on Facebook. Exactly. Um, one thing that I, that, that I do need to mention in the context of vaccines is um, people will argue, well, they're not safe. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I guess I will make immediately two statements in that regard. Um, when I last checked, we have administered 415 million doses of vaccine in this country across the three <laughs> major uh, vaccines. Mm-hmm. Um, we have had, by anybody's reckoning, a remarkably small number of people who have encountered side effects. Now, I'm not going to argue with you what that fraction is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know it immediately, but I will argue that I know exactly what the downside of COVID is. And we all know it is. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. so many of us know it because we've been, you know, had family members, loved ones, friends, et cetera, who have uh, been directly impacted. So I will argue to you is I'll grant you that there's some epsilon of risk, small number of risk associated with the vaccine. Okay. That number is, I'm going to argue, that risk is an order of magnitude less, or excuse me, less of getting vaccinated uh, than contracting COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, namely, your chances of dying are astronomically higher in getting COVID than, than from a vaccine. Mm-hmm. So I believe that that is uh, something that's being lost. Then we go into the fact, well, are there people who should be medically exempt from getting uh, vaccination? And the answer to that is yes. But, and I'm sort of stepping a little bit beyond my bounds here, That number is generally considered to be quite small because those are people who have had a severe reaction to some other vaccination, Mm -hmm. which is true. And Mm -hmm. those are people who need to be, uh, I will grant, immediately cautious and consult with medical experts as to whether or not the risk of that vaccine to them, given the fact that they have had previous bad experiences by definition Mm -hmm. with vaccination, um, is outweighs the risks that, as I mentioned, are associated with COVID. So I, I grant that, uh, but I do agree that I try to stay away from reading some of the stuff on Facebook because I just uh, I can't take it. Uh, but I recently did see some information that uh, um, you know, we can talk a little bit more about how what are the circumstances that lead us to have such you know massive amount of information around COVID when in previous scientific debates we you know we arguably did not have that degree of uh, misinformation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we were talking a little bit before we started the recording how uh, when the polio vaccine was uh, created, that actually there were some versions of it that people did get sick and they got – they were paralyzed too or not treated for it. Uh, But 
people were so afraid of uh, polio that they flocked to get any version of the vaccine they could. That was in the 1950s, maybe the early 1960s. And uh, some theories are out there that after that, we had the Vietnam War, we had the environment. Rachel Carson said, hey, all this stuff we're uh, spraying around in your backyard is killing us. And um, with Silent Spring, her book, and uh, people's uh, attitudes about government and authority changed. And maybe this is uh, the ultimate um, result of that kind of thing over a couple of generations. Uh, without sort of citing any survey data, I think it is probably true that distrust of government is higher today than it was certainly back during the Salk vaccine. By the way, I'm, hmm. I know you're proud or embarrassed to say that I was standing in line for a sugar cube back in uh, yeah, around 1960, and I don't recall anybody ever saying, I mean, we were all begging for it, just like uh, Paul and I here were begging for COVID uh, mm. vaccinations when we became uh, eligible. Um, the theme that I think matters in this discussion or an interesting um, uh, subtopic is the role that social media uh, has played. Uh, obviously, we didn't have social media in 1960. We largely didn't have it uh, uh, even as uh, recently as 1995. Um, and as I've saying before, the way I look at social media is that back in the day, we all got our news from Walter Cronkite. Mm -hmm. um, I'm dating myself. Uh, and by the way, there was always some suspicion about Walter Cronkite, but I literally believe at the time he was often cited as the most uh, respected yes. uh, man in America, mm -hmm. person in America. Mm -hmm. Okay, I don't know of any newscaster today that will uh, come uh, close to that. Mm -hmm. um, so we all got our news there. It was all a very centralized thing. I mean, it might have been CBS, ABC, NBC. There was only really three content providers plus newspapers where something would happen in two or three days from then you'd get the paper delivered and you find out about it. Right. So let's fast forward now. What do we have? We have a planet with 7 billion people, and therefore we now have potentially 7 billion content creators. Mm -hmm. 50 years ago, the content was largely created by a very small set of number of, of organizations, news channels, and so forth. They would presumably vet this, and then they would put this out. Now, anybody with a Facebook account, which is uh, several billion people on this planet, can decide to generate content. Mm -hmm. And guess what? They can push that content out there and that content will immediately be absorbed uh, uh, by some number of people depending on their social graph, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, as much as Facebook tries algorithmically to identify this, it is a very, getting back to machine learning and the sorts of things I've done in my previous slides, mm -hmm. it is a very, very challenging proposition to read a set of text, a, a textual statement and assert with confidence that that is factually wrong. It's mm -hmm. not impossible. Uh, it has to be done at scale. The scale is not the problem. The problem is uh, uh, the precision, getting it right. Mm -hmm. So we are now in a predicament that didn't exist, for example, when Neil Armstrong landed on the moon in 1969, and some people questioned whether or not that grainy video that people have all seen uh, was actually Neil Armstrong on the moon. Mm -hmm. uh, it existed back then. Uh, I shudder to think what would have happened uh, <laughs> had we had uh, Facebook. I just used Facebook as representative of social media, where a whole bunch of people could have instantly uh, tweeted uh, posted on Facebook, whatever, mm -hmm. uh, their own theories mm -hmm. about what happened. Or for that matter, the Kennedy assassination, mm -hmm. which, uh, uh, again, was an event uh, that uh, had a lot of controversy and generated, uh, back to the statement, the, the concern about distrust in government. Mm -hmm. um, what would have happened back then? Would science, in fact, a broader discussion that I think about now is how would science in this country have progressed in the last 50 years, mm. if we had uh, a bunch of, shall I call them, amateur scientists uh, fully equipped uh, with a platform, mm -hmm. let's call that platform Facebook, the ability to post content there, and guess what? Nobody's going to peer review it. Mm -mm. No, that's fascinating. 
So you'll be going into even more depth and interesting uh, I, I explaining this, your ideas and what you found on campus here, the main, uh, what do we call it, Pete, the Midtown campus on uh, 181 White Street in Science Building 125. That's on Wednesday, November 3rd at 5.30. We got plenty of seats. Public's invited. You'll have a lot of students there too and faculty, but the public is also invited. You do have to wear a mask when you come into uh, a building at Westcon. And, uh, but we look forward to um, hearing you again on November 3rd. I'm really looking forward to it. Okay, well, thank you very much. Uh, a pleasure speaking to you, Paul, and I uh, very much look forward to the talk on the 3rd. Thanks. Thanks for coming in, too. Thank you. All right, we have a new student co-host this week, Yusuf Saqib. I said that right, didn't I? Yeah, you did. <laughs> I did? Perfect. Okay. And um, uh, he's one of our three student co-hosts who is joining us new this year, and uh, we're going to find out a little bit about Yusuf. Hi, everyone. This is Yusuf Ibrahim. I am a sophomore at Western Connecticut. I'm still undecided. But um, I, I'm thinking that I'll be majoring in finance. Ah. Yeah. And are there any competition for that? Or what's making you undecided about it? Uh, like, it's, I can't figure out what to do. Like, I really can't. Like, in every aspect of life, not just, like, in, <laughs> in the university. Like, I always juggle around things. I can't figure it out, like, very soon as other people do. I always, to, I always wanted to try everything. Hmm. taste everything, mm -hmm. and see what, what is the best fit for me. That's what college is about. That's right. why it's good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How did you end up at WestCon? So I live nearby. I just came in this country like two years ago. Mm -hmm. I am from Bangladesh. Yeah. I, I did my high school over there. Mm. I just came here with my family. WestCon was nearby, so yeah. That's good. Yeah. So you didn't finish high school at Danbury High? I didn't know. I finished my high school back in the country. Yeah. What is that like uh, making? That's a pretty big transition, right? From it Bangladesh is. to Danbury? Correct. It is. It is a very big transition. New environment, new people, new culture. Yeah. It is. How's it going so far? It is going good right now. But during the first few days, it was pretty hard, mm. to be honest. I won't lie. It was very hard. And uh, are people of WestCon helping you out, it accommodating, yeah, supportive? Yeah, they are. They are very supportive. That's good. Mm -hmm. And how did you hear about the podcast gig here? The podcast, I I actually heard one or two podcasts from Western Connecticut. So I was like, it's it's very fun. And I really like podcasts a lot. Yeah. Mm, you, you hear podcasts? Oh, yeah. You do? Yeah. You know Jay Shetty? No. On Pete purpose? Might. No. Mm -mm. You, you don't? You, you know Gary Vaynerchuk? No? They're pretty good. Pete is on top of most podcasts, yeah, too. Yeah, we'll have to, uh, when, when you guys are done, look at, we'll, we'll sure. post to it on the, on the uh, description. Sure, yeah. yeah. I hear podcasts a lot, like every day, like one or two hours. Like, I, I, should, I have to hear podcasts. I like it. That's good. Did you listen to them in Bangladesh, too? I did not know. Yeah, so it's a new U.S. <laughs> kind of yeah, discovery. New U.S. kind of discovery. Too. And you heard some of our at WCSU podcasts? I did, yeah. So who did, who did better, Pete or me? You both of you guys did. Oh, you, that's you what Bianca said, too. Yeah. You guys are so polite. Paul, you are shameless. <laughs> I am. <laughs> uh, and um, so what do you want to bring to this podcast? So I wanted to talk about sports, new events, and about business in general, like business, like how college students should approach the business of 21st century. Mm. Yeah, I want to talk about, like, discuss everything I know mm -hmm. and learn but, about but it. That's great. Yeah. It's important, I think, for every student to have some business background, whether you're an artist or mm -hmm. a nurse or... Who else? A communications person, because everybody is going to have an opportunity to have right. to be there an entrepreneur or have some kind of business experience during True. their career. And I want now. I want to add something with you, like, and this like in this age, no matter what you do, you you need business. You mm -hmm. need you need the knowledge of business. No matter if you work for someone, even if you work for someone, 
you want to grow, right? Mm-hmm. You want to be be the better version of yourself tomorrow, better than today. So if you want to do that, you have to have some knowledge about business. Mm-hmm. How can you grow? How can you put yourself out there? How can you be the best version of yourself? Exactly. So it's not like you you want to start a business and then you need a need to study business. It's not like that. Mm-hmm. Everyone should have some knowledge of, about business. I agree with you 100%. The, uh, so maybe through this podcast, we can convince every student at WestCon to take a business course or two. Sure. Yeah. How many finance courses have you taken so far? Finance? Uh, I've taken just two finance courses. I was planning to do accounting before. Mm-hmm. I was planning to major in accounting, but I've decided not to. Why? Uh, I don't know. Accounting is pretty hard. It just I can't catch it. But finance seems more like logical and more interesting. So your brain works better that yeah. way. Mm-hmm. I. I uh, got my MBA here at WestCon, and accounting I found easier than finance. You did. I was, uh, you know, I made it through in finance, but I'm never going to be the CFO of any company <laughs> or the accountant, actually. Mm. I'm more of the presidential type, you know, right. the leader. Right, yeah. <laughs> Pete's laughing now. <laughs> The uh, And you said you wanted to uh, maybe bring some sports reporting mm-hmm. to the podcast? Right, yeah. I want to bring, like, I have a vast knowledge about soccer. Mm. Yeah. Other sports, I do have little knowledge, but not that much. But soccer, I know, I know like, a lot about yeah. soccer, yeah. That's good. Uh-huh. But do you call it soccer? We call it football. Yeah. <laughs> we call it football over there. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. Some people are calling it football here, too, and American football for, you know, the thing that happens mm-hmm. on Sunday. Right, yeah. We call it football over there. It's like, this is the only country that I know calls it soccer. Yes. Yeah. It's us. Yes, you're right. <laughs> hey, Yusuf, what about cricket? Cricket? Yeah, I do play cricket. You, you, did you ever play? Uh, no, I never played, but a, a friend of mine who was from Bangladesh actually uh-huh. used to talk to me about cricket all the yeah, time. Yeah, it's so. pretty fun. You should, you should try it. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It's like baseball. Yes. It's like baseball. Yeah, no, it looks it looks really fun, and I used to it watch is. it some when he would, you know, when he uh-huh. would talk about it. So yeah, it's it's fun. Don't you have scores of like sixty eight to forty two in cricket and things like that? No, it's not like that. So yeah. in cricket, what we do is, so in baseball they call it the pitcher, right? Who yes. who, who like throws it? Mm-hmm. But in cricket, it's called the bowler. Mm. So you bowl bowl it. You got like three stamps, and you like the the. Job for the bowler is to target the stamps, and mm-hmm. and the it's called the batsman who like does Tries it. Tries to hit the yeah, ball. Yeah, hits the ball, and th- their job is to hit the ball out outside the ground. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so, what's a normal score for cricket? So cricket, it's like two hundred, three hundred. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you hit the ball outside the ground, it's a six. Oh, okay. So you add six to a score. So yeah. is uh, and the games can go on for a long time, right? How it, do you figure out the end of the game? So it's there is a limit. So mm. you bowl like there is an over. You bo- you bowl six balls per over, and you play like for fifty overs, twenty mm. overs. It's like three to four hours a day. Like, oh, okay, yeah. that's not too bad. Like a regular U.S. baseball game, right? And is there any cricket going on around here that you can play in? Yeah. Well, yeah, I do, I do. I do play. I do play cricket as well. I didn't know there was cricket around here. <laughs> yeah, it's not in the campus, but it's like in Danbury area. Really? Yeah. And a bunch of uh, Englishmen and Bangladeshis and Bangladeshi, Indians? Pakistanis, Indians. Mm-hmm. They play cricket. And you don't talk about politics then, or do you? Politics? I really, I, I do, I do sometimes, but you know, not that interested. <laughs> Nobody gets, uh, it doesn't get heated then. Right, yeah. Right? It's tough over there. Mm-hmm. My, my father gets heated. Mm. My father gets heated. Yeah. We should have him in then sometime. <laughs> get him going. Yeah. <laughs> or we'll call it, just call him. Mm. How about your mom? Does she get all excited about politics? No, my mother is like pretty cl- calm about everything. Mm-hmm. She doesn't even talk about it. <laughs> she doesn't even, like she is a kind of person who doesn't like get into like talking loudly or he like heated things. Mm-hmm. She, she is very calm, very composed. Yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. And they are doing okay over here too. They are, yeah, they are. Do you have brothers and sisters? I have one brother who goes to Danbury High. Hmm. He's a senior over there. Yeah, and is that okay for him? Mm-hmm. He's doing pretty good. Good. And so, what about the winter? You've had a couple of winters now, though. <laughs> yeah, 
They're a little rough sometimes. A little rough, yeah. Like, uh, like if you compare it with with the weather in our country, it's like very rough. Yeah. Yeah. The maximum for our country would be eighty-five. Mm. That's, that's not bad. That, that's no, that's, the, nice. that's the, like, the coolest. Oh, the coolest? The coolest, yeah. <laughs> so summer's kind of hot, then, Yeah, probably. summer's, like, mm, the maximum would be, for summer, it would be 110. Mm, that's rough. Yeah. Were you just calculating between Celsius and Fahrenheit mm-hmm, there? I was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I wonder how long you'll have to do that, staying in this country, <laughs> yeah. before it gets... My uh, father still can't, he doesn't, he can't calculate between the Celsius and yeah. Fahrenheit. He yeah. still says Celsius. Mm-hmm. He would say, like, it's um, 10 today. I was like, I'm like, what? It's not 10. <laughs> it's, it's 40. No, it's 10. Yeah, that's your job as a son. Yeah. To, you know, set him straight. Yeah. All right. So next time we have you on, we'll talk a little about more, uh, more about cricket and football and... We'll talk about events on campus, too. Sure, yeah. I'd definitely love to. All right. Yeah. And you can then just gives you a little more time to think about who's better, Pete or me. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Yusuf. Thank you very much. All right. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'll, I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Good. Thank you. Yeah, that was, that was really cool. Um, I love the idea of just being like being a data scientist mm-hmm. and something comes along in the world that you're like, oh, I can apply the thing that I've been doing my entire life to this mm-hmm. and find out something. I was very uh, jealous and, and fascinated by that whole thing. I'd love to, to have, you know, like he was saying, like 40 years of experience in something and be able to just turn that on. That's right. Whatever comes up. That was really cool. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, similarly, you and I can do podcasts for the rest of our lives. <laughs> exactly. I'll talk to subject. in 40 years. Next yeah. time something crazy happens, we'll, uh, <laughs> someone will interview us. <laughs> so next week, Paul, we have a, a very spooky guest, don't we? That's right. Just in time for Halloween, by coincidence, <laughs> Dr. Leslie Lindenauer, who happens to be an expert on witchcraft in Connecticut. I did not know this, but she is... Uh, you know, almost got her PhD in witchcraft in Connecticut. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and she's going to tell us all about it. I can't wait to talk to her. I think you're exaggerating again. Paul. It's a little bit of an exaggeration, okay. but she is an expert. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, Paul, this this weekend is our last uh, home football game. So, everybody, make sure you, you come out to support the uh, team. And if for some strange reason you can't make it, it will be live streamed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can watch the game at wcsu.edu slash live. And you should because Pete's all behind that. And uh, uh, we want to reward his good work. Yeah, unless something weird happens and then I had nothing to do with it. And uh, <laughs> it's not my fault. And who are we playing this weekend? Uh, this weekend is Mass Maritime. Oh, yeah. And, and we're going to crush day. them. And yeah. Senior Day. Yeah. And it'll be a win. It better be. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's everybody get together and send these seniors off with not only a win, which is up to them, and uh, but a lot of applause and cheering, which is all up to us. Yeah. All right, Pete. I guess that's it for this week's edition of At WCSU, the award-winning podcast. It's not award-winning. <laughs> it will someday. Did you forget to put us in for that award again? <laughs> yes, it's my fault. Yeah, that is it's on your uh, list. Even if we just if we just take a piece of paper and write award on it and put it on the wall, then mm-hmm. I'll be okay. Then, All right. I, then I can satisfy the We have a the, graphics uh, the, department. I, we'll have them do it. It'll <laughs> we'll really look it. nice. Yeah. yeah. Just don't tell me. I'll just I'll believe it, and then I'll stop having to correct you all the time, and we'll be okay. <laughs> the Pulitzer Prizes are coming up, and they have a podcast edition, and uh, we're going to try for that. Anyway, until then, I'm Paul Steinmetz. He's Pete Puccio, and this is At WCSU. At WCSU is a production of WCSU Media, engineered by Peter Puccio and produced by Scott Folby. Listen and subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at WCSU Media and on the university's Facebook and Twitter pages. And feel free to reach out to us by email at podcasts at wcsu.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>